Introducing the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast with New York Times bestselling author, Christine Carlson. With 25 million copies in print, learn how the Don't Sweat Wisdom can help you achieve greater mental health and better communication with your family, friends, and coworkers from a beloved teacher. Rediscover your passion, joy, and self-compassion to awaken your most vibrant life. Hi, and welcome back to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast. This is Christine Carlson. Before we begin, let's go ahead and take our golden pause. So wherever you are, sit comfortably. If you're sitting in a chair, just uncross your legs and place your palms open on your lap. And if you're sitting cross-legged, just lean back against your chair or your couch, wherever you are, and sit upright and just give your shoulders a little majestic nature, a little bring your shoulders back and open your heart. And if you're driving, of course, just pay attention to the road and use this as a breathing exercise. So let's go ahead and begin to breathe together. As you breathe in, breathe in through your nose and allow your chest and your belly to fully expand, taking in the maximum amount of oxygen. And as you exhale, just let go. Let go of any tension you feel in your body. Let go of your neck, your shoulders. Just relax. This time as you breathe in, breathe in golden sunlight all the way to the top of your head, to the tips of your fingers, to your toes, all the way through your body, pure golden sunlight. And as you exhale, let go and just relax. This time as you breathe in, breathe in love. Fill your whole body with love. Fill your heart with love, your core with love, your head with love, your fingers, your toes, your whole body with love. And as you exhale, let go of fear, let go of tension, and just relax. And this next deep breath in, as you breathe in golden sunlight, place your hand on your heart, activating your heart, opening your heart. And just spend a moment in complete gratitude and just think of a person, a place, something somebody recently said, or maybe it's just this moment right here, and just feel all that gratitude. Breathing in golden sunlight and exhaling. And just one more deep breath in and exhale and go ahead and open your eyes. So I'm really excited to share with you a wonderful um, book. It's been written by Joseph DiNardo. Joseph DiNardo is the CEO, director, and founder of Council Financial and author of A Letter to My Wife, an intimate story of love found and of love lost and found with his late wife, Marcia. Prior to founding Council Financial in 2000, Joe practiced mass tort and personal injury law for over 26 years, securing multi-million dollar high-profile settlements or awards on cases tried to verdict. He's a graduate of the State University of New York at Buffalo Law School and has been featured several times in Best Lawyers, the oldest and most respected peer review publication in the legal profession. 
Welcome, Joe. It's so nice to have you. Thank you. I'm just coming out of my relaxation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everyone says. It relaxes me too. That's why I do it. <laughs> well, Joe, I'm so excited to talk to you about um, this wonderful letter that you've written your wife. And before um, we really launch into the story of it, maybe we should just have you read the letter. Would you like to read the letter for our listeners? Oh, that's great. And, and so, you know, the book is, the whole book is not the letter. The letter is just the beginning of it. Okay. And okay. The rest of the book sort of puts it in context. But um, by reading the letter, it'll give your listeners some context about what we're going to be talking about, you know, for the rest of our time here. That's great. So. Thanks, Joe. My dearest love, I write this letter tonight on tear-stained paper. My heart lies in pieces on our bedroom floor. But I wanted to share something with you before you go on your journey. How or why this happened, I don't know. But I do know that I love you so desperately that the thought of you not lying next to me ever again is too painful to think about. Watching you suffer and endure one treatment after another and seeing you ravaged and unable to eat for months was the hardest thing I have ever done. But nothing compared to your suffering, my love. I know that. For two years, I knew this day would come, but you made me never really believe it. I begged and prayed that you would never leave me, yet, inevitably, here I am, holding your hand, surrounded by family, and you slowly slipping away, breath by breath. But how can you look so beautiful, even after you slipped away? I knelt there asking you to please turn to me and say you felt okay. But you were gone, and oh, how my heart broke into pieces. I remember two years ago when you were admitted to the hospital for what everyone thought was a simple scope to snip out a gallstone, maybe put in a small stent. Well, they did the stent, but the doctor said he didn't see any gallstones and that your gallbladder was fine. Then what caused the blockage, I asked. A growth on the pancreas seemed to be pushing a duct closed, causing all the pain and backup, he replied. What do you mean a growth? I mean that I can't help you, that you need to change your treatment options. What are you saying? I'm saying you need to go to Roswell Park Cancer Institute. What? Are you saying my wife has a cancerous tumor on her pancreas? I'm saying you should go to Roswell. Jerk. I saw your face go white. Your eyes teared up for a moment. In that instant, I had two overwhelming feelings. First, the fear and sadness that I, what this means for you and for us. But at the same moment, I completely was awash in the most incredible sense of love for you, pure, unconditional love, I knew then that I wanted to and would be there every step of whatever this journey might take you. I never knew how much I loved you, and in that moment I knew and experienced a love I'd never shared or experienced before. Thank you, my sweet. Know this, Juliana, our daughter, is going to be okay. You've skillfully built a wonderful village around her with Haley, Aaron, Mona, all her cousins, and all, of course, all of the family and friends. 
we will all protect her and guide her and let her know she's loved and accepted in this world. Your family will be okay. What a fierce protector you were for them, how you love them all. I'm so happy that in your final moments, they could be right beside us and say farewell to the daughter, sister, aunt that they loved. Your mom, she will be okay. I know the thought of her burying her young husband and now her even younger daughter caused you such distress. But all of us will care for her now, so please do not worry. Me? We promised each other that we would always tell the truth, so no lies now. I'm not okay and never will be okay. Okay is coming home from work, lying on the couch with a glass of wine and watching you glide around the kitchen, working your magic, preparing dinner. Okay is going out to Hutch's or Giancarlo's or wherever for dinner and just talking and sharing for hours. Okay is taking one of our trips to Naples or somewhere else you planned with the whole family or with Chris and Andrea. Okay is holding you in my arms and loving you so hard the tears often flowed from our eyes. Okay is you here with me. That is okay. So I'm not okay. But I will be here for Juliana, our vast array of friends and family, and I'll be fine. Maya Angelou wrote, they will never remember what you said. They will never remember what you did but they will always remember how you made them feel and oh, how you made us feel. Your smile, your sparkling eyes, your pure pleasure in family and friends. You made each and every person that knew you feel a real connection, a real affection and a real acceptance without judgment. Your posse of girlfriends near and far, I marveled at how you made each one feel so loved and that each had a special connection with you. I'll never know how you did it, and they will each miss you so in their own way. Your nieces and nephews, how happy you made them feel each time they were with you. Special, my love, you made each so special. Bruce Springsteen wrote a song that we loved. We said we'd walk together come what may, that come the twilight, should we lose our way? If as we're walking, a hand should slip free. I'll wait for you. Should I fall behind, wait for me. Well, your hand has slipped free, so go. And if it takes 10,000 years, I will find you again. Have no fear as you travel. You're slipping away now. I see it. I know it. Holding your hand is the greatest privilege of my life. Thank you. Now go, sweetheart. Your work is done here. Your suffering is soon over. Take as much of me as you want as you embark on your journey. Your devoted, loving husband, Joe. Oh, wow. Wow, that's really something. It's still difficult for me to read. Of course. Of course it is. Of course it is. Wow. So did you write that letter as she was actually passing or did you write that letter before she passed and were able to read it to her? 
I was in the, the process of writing it before she passed and finished it shortly after she passed so that I could read it at, uh, as a uh, eulogy at her funeral. Um, I was, I didn't know what, you know, when in a situation like this, unfortunately you have so much to do like a funeral yeah. what's it going to be. And in many cases, you know, there's an array of cousins and uncles that all want to say something. Yeah. But I felt it was very important, you know, that Marsha's funeral have a certain feel and touch to it that would most embody her life and, and the love that she had and Anyways, I just felt that I was the one who had to do that. So I finished the letter and thought, wow, I could do this. I could read this letter at the, at the funeral, and this would, this would be the eulogy. And that's what I did. That's beautiful. Did you, did you ever have a chance to read her parts of the letter? No. You didn't? Okay. But we thought, you know, before she, what happened at the end, and what happens with many people dealing with terminal illness, especially those that have the willpower and the strength and the love and support of many, that they're able to stave off the inevitable effects of the disease for long or longer than people in medicine think they should be doing it. Right. Uh, but at some point in time, the body breaks down, often long before the spirit breaks down. Yeah. And in Marsha's case, you know, she maintained that fierce determination to still, you know, fight through this thing almost until the very end. But then as her body just crumbled in the last five or six days, she was in a coma. She was incoherent and there was no really reading her a letter at that point yeah so tell me what has this letter done for you and you know writing this book that you've written a letter to my wife what has this done for you and your healing and and what was and what do you hope that it gives to people who read it well the after i read the, the letter at, at, at the church you know, for months afterwards, you know, people would just stop me that knew us and people who were not even in church and just say, wow, I heard about the letter that you wrote and people felt inspired and, and loved. And well, you know, and a lot of people just commented on it mm -hmm. and wanted to know if they could get a copy of the letter. And fortunately, I, you know, I'd saved a copy, but it was handwritten and on tear stained paper. Uh, and I thought about it. I said, well, wouldn't it be nice if I put together a small book, a letter to my wife, and made it available to friends and family? Nice. So I called a friend of mine, Amy Koppelman, who's an author in New York City. And I said, Amy, I'm a, I want to try to take this letter and a lot of the emails that I wrote while Marsha was in treatment and see if I could incorporate them into a, like a book. Is there, can you help me with this? She said, well, I can't. I have a lot of deadlines, but this woman, uh, Yona McDonough, could help you. She's in New York. So I called her. She said, sure, I'll act as your editor, Joe. And I said, great, I need that. 
And she thought after reading the letter and the emails, she said, Joe, all of this is great. And for family and friends, it's probably more than enough. But if somebody else picks it up, they're not going to have a clue, you know, who you are, who Marsha is, what you're talking about. He said, you have to fill in the blanks and put it in context. So let's try to write a little book. And she would give me assignments to write a chapter on Marsha, to write a chapter on me, and so on. And that's that's how the, the, the book took shape. And then when it was done, you know, we put it together and put it in a cover and, you know, I ordered like 50 copies of it. And um, some people that saw it, you know, said, Joe, this is like, you know, the way you write, you should make a long story short. It's now going to be published on Amazon. Yay. In about two weeks, you'll be able to either download it or order the book, A Letter to My Wife on Amazon. Oh, exciting. And, uh, you know, I've been uh, invited to be on a podcast like this with you. <laughs> I've been on one earlier in New York City. Um, and I'll be on a podcast with uh, Dan Harris you know, sometime in the, in the near future. So it's just taken on a life of its own. Um, it's Marsha's, my gift to her. Um, and in the book, in addition to the letter and this historical stuff, in, in the book, I weave into the book a great deal about my personal meditation practice, which started 40 years ago and has basically been a Buddhist Vipassana meditation approach of mindfulness practice. And I've developed a strong practice, I believe, over the years of doing many, many, many sitting silent retreats uh, at the Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts, at the uh, at other retreat centers around the country and around the world, actually. And how do you feel like this helped you um, on the journey that you were on with your wife and, and her cancer and her treatments? How, how, do you, how did that come into play for you? Well, when she, uh, as soon as we got the diagnosis, which changed our lives in an instant, um, you know, I recognized that I was going to need, as my primary source of strength, the practice that I've been developing for many years, the ability to sit quietly. Mm-hmm. Um, Be super present. Develop, develop a sense of concentration on your breath, mm-hmm. bringing you into the moment, and then allowing all of these feelings of uh, frustration, fear, uh, loss, uh, anger, uh, this unconditional love that I discovered resided inside of me for my wife, unconditional. I mean, that's a very important word because most love is conditional. And for the first time, I was experiencing a love that had nothing to do with how much she loved me or how she might act or treat or speak to me. I was going to, I felt and I knew that I was going to love her unconditionally for whatever period of time we had together. Um, 
But the meditation practice gave me a center, and as always, by the way, for 40 years, gives me a center to allow these strong vicissitudes of life to sort of come, observe them, be one with them, be in the moment with them, but train yourself to let them go without adding additional baggage to the feeling, not getting caught in the storyline all the time. Yeah, you know, I found that in my grief, um, you know, oftentimes people ask me um, in my work, how do you prepare for loss? And I always tell them there's really only one way to prepare for loss, and that's in how you live. It's the practices that you've put in place before your loss that you'll rely on during your loss. And for sure, for me, it was the same thing that... I was able to observe my grief and be in my grief, but allow it to really empty. And I was able to go through a surrender process far easier, I do believe, because I, I've been a meditator my whole life. And and I love that you know that you are showing that you 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 know how this played out in you know in the journey that you had with your wife through cancer. You know because it's like we have to. We have to learn to live with the things that we're given. And, and would you not agree that you, you live with cancer until that person is no longer there, right? I mean... Absolutely. And it's, not, and it's not just cancer. I mean, cancer is sort of the big thing that happens to people. It's a but, treatment. Yes, and the treatment. But, you know, the life itself in general, you know, one of the things that that the Buddha tried to explain to us is life is life and we have no control over it. Right. Just keeps flowing along whether we like it or not. (laughs) And the more comfortable we get with that flow, the less stress, anxiety, and suffering that we have and experience. The meditation practice, let's assume that you can, try to develop a practice when you're not necessarily in crisis. Very hard to do when you're in crisis and you never had any training before. But let's assume you have a chance to develop a practice. The practice actually allows you to practice letting go of our controlling uh, nature of trying to stop things that we don't like or hang on to things and pleasurable things that we do like. And without making a judgment at either end, sort of let them drift through our consciousness and not allow ourselves to buy into, you know, the the drama of each and every one of them, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. If you have some of that ability developed already, then when a crisis, and by the way, whether it's a small crisis, something at work, somebody offends you, your boss says something that you take, you know, the wrong way, you have a fight with your boyfriend or girlfriend or a husband or wife, um, anything like that can occur, or a major crisis, like a diagnosis, uh, you know, stage four pancreatic cancer. We need to develop the ability to not let that the emotions that come about that arise 
from that experience, from that what life presents you to engulf us. Right. Take our over our mentality. When we do that, we only increase the strength of those emotions. Right. The practice of meditation, and I don't like to use the word meditation, Christine, so much because it has so much connotation that, you know, for so many different people that a lot of people get scared away. It's really mindfulness practice, learning to be present, learning to be focused, uh, and learning to let go as thoughts, emotions, physical sensations arise in and in your consciousness. Um, that kind of practice, that kind of foundation can be extremely helpful when you're suddenly confronted with something more powerful than you had an argument with your boyfriend. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me um, where you're at today in your grief. How has life carried on for you and, and how many, how, how long has it been since your wife passed? She passed away in um, late March of 2015. So it's been about a year and a half. Okay. Uh, I have a 16-year-old daughter. Wow. She has, she had, has always had a lot of challenges anyways in life. Uh, I think maybe more for mother-daughter than it is for any other relationship I can think of. The loss of a loving mother, that is a mother that, you know, adores her daughter, has a relationship, they do things together without me around, they shopping. Yeah, all that. All of that stuff. And and while a lot of people might think that's superficial, it's really a way of bonding that mothers and daughters do, that no, no one else can understand it but mothers and daughters. Yeah, no, it's just the way we have fun. Yeah. <laughs> And I, so I saw that happening. I loved it. And then I, I thought, wow, if I'm experiencing this much loss of my wife, what must my daughter be experiencing? Yeah, that, that I mean, I know, I don't know if you know too much about my story, but I lost my husband when my girls were 14 and 17. Same age for me. Yeah. Four. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, they would say as much as they love and adore their father, as much as, you know, he was everything to them like I am, I think they would say that to lose me would have been a more difficult loss just because of the nature of that mother-daughter bond and relationship, you know, that that we just, you know, it's like they say, um, uh, when when a daughter leaves, you never really lose your daughter when she marries. But when a son leaves, you do. You know, kind of like that kind of thing. It's 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 that I don't know. There is something between mothers and daughters that's just profoundly. Well, no, it's a very deep. special. I agree. It's a very special bond, and um, so I honor that. And you know, it concerns me because my daughter's initial emotional reaction was certainly one of you know, sadness and tears. Of course, of course. But after that, she seemed to rebound. I read, you know, some different materials about teenage girls and the loss of their mother. There's a book called Mothers and Daughters, and it's basically a, a an accumulation of a number of stories of women who uh, 
have and the relationships with their mother. And they in one of the sections it says that oftentimes younger children and teenagers can only experience a deep emotion at the level of emotional maturity that they're at at the right. time it happens. Right. And if that's if their level of maturity is is not so great, it's often that they have a delayed reaction and later in life, maybe it's two years, maybe it's five years or when they're 25 years old, they suddenly look back and say, wow, that's, I feel this loss. And they have a, a new experience of that loss that happened some time ago on the physical side, but they're just now able to process it. Right. And I think my daughter is now at age 16 and a half having some of that delayed response. So it's a challenge for me because first she's 16 and you know better than anybody what that means. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Girls have their own universe that they live in. And secondly, um, it's just me and her in a sense. I have a great auntie. She has great aunts. But at the end of the day, it's a challenge for me as a father, a male, to talk to my daughter about shaving her legs, yeah, uh, showering every night, you know, or does this outfit or jacket go with those jeans? I mean, I really have no, I don't know if it does. <laughs> Just, I so. know it's it's yeah, wow, I know there's so many things. So I find that there's plenty of of opportunity for me to employ my practice, <laughs> meditation practice on a, a daily level. And quite frankly, uh, my meditation practice is uh, with me all of the time. When people say, well, how, off, how long do you meditate every day? Depending on who I'm speaking to. Like if I were speaking to you, I would say, you know, Christine, I meditate all day long. Yeah. Because as you know, at any given moment when you're not, quote, unquote, awake, you can just take a deep breath, sit back, and reconnect. Um, and that's part of the practice. Well, and that's, you know, that is, we just want to clarify that that's part of what it, it's like after you've been doing it, a practice for a long time. You know, you just drop in very quickly, and it's, it's, it isn't the same kind of effort that it feels at first, you know, oftentimes, like at first, when you're first learning, it can feel kind of effort, you know, like a big effort to sit and be quiet and into your breath. But as you've done it for a while, and your practice deepens, it just becomes that much easier to drop in. So I I completely understand what you're talking about. That's exactly how, I mean, I definitely don't meditate all day long, because I definitely notice I'm out of my, you know, body sometimes, and I'm busy, and I'm you know, busy minded or whatever, but, but I also, I'm like that I can drop back in very quickly when I realize that I'm out and I need to, you know, be more mindful and be in my body. And, um, well, I, I think this is such a rich conversation and I just, I want to thank you so much for several things. One, to have the courage to, you know, share this letter that you've written with the world, this such an intimate, beautiful, you know, heartfelt um, parting letter that, you know, so many people um, who are going through, you know, the potential loss of their loved one or 
are embarking on the journey of cancer. I think this is a um, something that is a beautiful, becomes a beautiful eulogy, but it's also something that you can do for your own healing and as a part of even healing the love that you are, that you are having and, you know, the connection that you have. I mean, one of the um, things that Richard did, Joe, before he died, three years before he died, and he died really suddenly of a pulmonary embolism. There was no cancer or anything, but he wrote me a letter on our 18th wedding anniversary, and it was um, answering the question posed by Stephen Levine in A Year to Live, if you had an hour and could make one phone call, who would it be to? What would you say? And why are you waiting? And then he wrote me a 37-page love letter. Oh, I, oh. I I unfortunately only gave him a card on that anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> but the cool thing was that he died three years later and four months into grief, I published that letter back with my response in it and really showed you know, showed that writing the letter that he wrote, I believe, allowed him to walk out the door and live without regret. You know, sure. I had some regrets because I didn't write that letter, but he didn't. And and I love the, the beauty of, you know, there's just this sort of nice parallel with this letter to your wife, you know, that it's such a healing journey it's a healing journey in life and it's a healing journey through loss. You know, it's like we heal from love and we and we also heal as we go through the loss of love. And, you know, I, I hope that, you know, you've become super aware that at some point in your journey, you know, you, you're going to realize that you've expanded into greater possibility, awakened deeper to life and that she's given you just not only so many gifts with her life, but so many gifts in her death because that's certainly what I've grown to realize in my loss is yeah. that the gifts that I've received in the awakening to life aspects have been so rich and my life will be forever changed not only for being loved so completely and loving so completely but by also losing so dramatically that love as well it's it's taught me so much and it's taught me and my soul has grown so much from this experience uh, i i appreciate what you're saying and and uh, and i resonate with that very much myself um it it was a privilege to be able to be there for marcia for the two years and right up until the very last moment as difficult as it was i also always felt gratitude that I was there to share. It is a very profound experience to care for someone you love who's in serious distress. Even if they should survive, it's still a very meaningful experience to allow yourself into that world. Yeah, Not, so it is an honor and a privilege to be that person. You're right. Yeah. Well, Joe, so how can um, people reach you? Can they go to your website, www.alettertomywife.com and find so your book org. there? Dot dot org. Org. Yes. Okay, so uh, www.alettertomywife.org. And, um, and then they can look for your book on Amazon in a couple of weeks, right? Yes, they'll be able to uh, download it, and they'll also be able to order the book if they wanted it. The, the book has... 
uh, 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 several different photographs of Marsha and our family and oh, uh, so that um, but yes they tell Amazon talked to us yesterday and they said it should be up you know maybe as soon as next week that's great and I just want to say that this podcast will actually be um, broadcast when this book is ready because it's not going to come out right away this podcast Joe so great. I'll just tell the audience now that um, you, you can go ahead and go to Amazon and find the book now and um, and enjoy that I'm, I'm sure it's it's just beautiful I can't wait to pick up my copy and and read the whole book and I just want to thank you, Joe, for coming on. It's been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. And, um, yeah, just stay in touch on the journey. Great. I look forward to it, Christine. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff with Christine Carlson. Chris invites you to join her for the brand new What Now program, a six-week offering carefully designed to take you on your own unique journey through life-altering transition and lead you to self-discovery and your most vibrant life. Receive access to powerful audio teachings, an in-depth workbook, and deeply valuable insights on passion and joy from a beloved teacher. Visit ChristineCarlson.com to learn more about how you can be part of the What Now program.